This is a Cato Special Podcast. I'm Caleb Brown. Over the weekend, former President Donald Trump made shocking remarks that for countries who aren't paid up with the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, the U.S. would not only not come to their defense if Russia were to attack, that he would encourage Russia to do, quote, whatever the hell they want. Is it an affront to ironclad U.S. commitments? Or perhaps it's just saying the quiet part out loud. Cato's Justin Logan comments. What are the commitments that the United States has made to NATO as an organization? And how free is the president of the United States to disregard those commitments? So that's a great question. I didn't know this was going to be a seven-hour podcast, um, but we will talk about uh, <laughs> the commitments that we have. So the big money commitment is Article 5 of NATO, which says that an attack on one member of NATO will be treated as an attack on all members of NATO in accordance with their own constitutional processes that the nations will respond to that attack. I think it doesn't say in a manner of their choosing, but it's actually quite murky. So Article 5 has this weird witchy thing about it that on the one hand, in the legal lawyer kind of way of reading it, it doesn't commit the United States to do all that much other than to treat an attack on others as an attack on itself and to respond in accordance with its constitutional processes, blah, 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 blah. However, at the same time, in practical terms, anytime a U.S. president says that a U.S. response to a notional attack on a member would be met by anything other than hellfire and brimstone, all of the allies say, uh-oh, does the United States not adhere to its commitments? Does, will the United States not follow through on its Article 5 commitment? So this is this sort of Janus face of NATO that I've talked about ad nauseum to the people who read everything that I write. So hi, mom. There is this weird duality there where the Americans in particular in the late 1940s when the North Atlantic Treaty Organization was being formed lawyered up Article 5 an awful lot as we do all of our defense treaties to preserve our freedom of action, because we don't know exactly what we might want to do or not want to do in a particular conflict. At the same time, our allies have said, if you don't promise us the sun, the moon, and the stars, then you've kind of sort of left NATO. You haven't really adhered to the commitment that you've made. So this, in the, in the lawyer sense, it doesn't commit us to do anything in particular. In the political sense, uh, it has historically been treated as this sacrosanct, sacred commitment. And we should note that Article 5 has been invoked exactly one time. Yeah. After the 9-11 attacks, um, we brought a bunch of European allies on the, the merry 20-year war that we lost in Afghanistan there. And the Europeans like to lord this over us, right? They say, how dare you think that uh, NATO is some kind of American commitment to Europe? Article 5 has only been invoked once on your behalf after 9-11, to which my response is, yeah, I'm really sorry about that. Um, you probably shouldn't have followed us into that quagmire. We made a big mistake there, so sorry. With respect to NATO broadly, it creates bad incentives for a lot of the countries that are in NATO. I would argue that probably creates bad incentives for the United States as well uh, with regard to extending protections to uh, those countries. 
that's my view. It's not a view that is held by most of the transatlantic community in Washington, right? The the practical purpose of the transatlantic community as it refers to itself, which describes think tankers on in the United States and also in Europe, is to eff- essentially explain away European shirking and to urge the United States to deepen its commitment to Europe, both to the existing members and to expand to new European members who almost always and everywhere are a net drag on the alliance. Um, This is a really unhealthy thing for the United States, right? Um, The term that I've used for decades has been infantilization, right? We have turned Europe into this feckless, demilitarized continent, which seemed sensible, quite frankly, in the late 1940s, after the last 30 or so years of politics on that continent. But now, three going on four generations later, is a bad thing for the United States. It were Europe to have more unified and more capable defense efforts autonomous from the United States, in my view, that would be a good thing, not a bad thing, because it would lessen the demand for U.S. military exertions in Europe. And of course, if you look at Europe's economies as juxtaposed against its uh, notional enemy in the form of Russia, it ain't a fair fight. The Europeans have an immensely larger collective economy. Their current defense spending, while not apportioned in a sensible way, if you're looking at Europe as a unified actor, is roughly four times Russia's military spending. If you look at the Russian military performance in Ukraine, it has not inspired awe in any observers, including in Ukraine itself. So this is not a country that is poised to plunge into the heart of uh, Poland, much less Germany. And the historical U.S. interest in Europe was preventing one country from dominating the continent. We fought a war in World War I for that reason. We fought a war in World War II for that reason. And we stuck around for a 50-year Cold War against the Soviet Union for that reason. There is no country on or indeed over the horizon that has any hope of dominating Europe. And that's the reason that many of us say there's there's a call, there's a there's a purpose for the United States to dial back its efforts in Europe and to allow European countries and perhaps the EU in some form or fashion to do more for European security on their own. So Trump has this way of saying, I would urge Russia to attack Europe if they don't pay their protection fees, that is very boorish, loutish, a protection racket. And that doesn't do service to the argument that that many of us make, which is that the existing status quo is bad for us. That has always been uh, the thing about Donald Trump's discussions or uh, characterizations of NATO which is that he doesn't mind NATO so much, uh, he minds countries not paying enough. And this idea that giving Russia some sort of green light to do whatever they want in various European countries sort of falls in line with his general view, whereas your view is NATO's a bad deal. Yeah, and you know, in in Trump's defense, it must be said that his shenanigans, if we can call them that, uh, throughout his presidency and into the present, do have the effect of rattling the Europeans. Um, so even though Trump did very little to create distance until the tail end of his administration. Um, when he was going to pull 12,000 troops out of Germany, which I think was a good thing and should be restarted immediately. Um, The Europeans were scared. 
they had anxiety about the extent to which um, the United States would be there for them. So there's this big controversy now about what Trump told this anonymous European leader about, you know, if you don't pay your protection fees, I won't be there to protect you. And I would urge Russia to do whatever it wants to you if you don't do that. So that's not the way I talk. It's not the way I think. But I actually don't care that he said something, even something crazy like that to a European head of state, because that kind of thing kind of takes you by the lapels and rams you into the locker a couple of times. You know what I mean? It like it, it, it gets your attention. For me, the problem is saying on the campaign trail at a public rally, you know, I told these European <laughs> heads of state that not only would I not protect them, but I would in fact urge Russia to attack them, where now you don't, you have multiple audiences now. Um, it's not just the European leader to say, you know what, I don't care about your country, you're on your own, go to hell. He's now saying, I told a European head of state, I don't care about your country and go to hell, in front of, inter alia, the American public, Vladimir Putin, uh, anyone else who who cares to listen. So it's taking that out of a private discussion one-on-one -on -one with a European head of state and taking it into the internet in front of God and everybody is the real uh, malpractice here. It's the crystal clear example of the quiet part being said out loud. You know, there's a, a, my generation might be the last generation that believed that not every thought that you have ought to come out of your mouth. Uh, so I, I worry that this, this is the harbinger of a real-time social media TikTok politics in which the id connects immediately to a Cat5 cable and uh, sprays out onto the internet in front of God and everybody, which is a little bit of a terrifying idea. Let's say we clean up the language of Donald Trump and make it more uh, a Justin Logan-type uh, explanation of how the U.S. ought to engage with NATO and how the U.S. ought to protect its own interests against uh, an unforeseen uh, problem um, among or within or from without uh, NATO nations. What might that sound like? So I wrote a paper in, I guess, March of last year, I think it was, called Uncle Sucker, Why U.S. Efforts at Defense Burden Sharing Failed that may be of interest to people rather than read that here. Um, there are a lot of things that the United States can do to try to rebalance the burdens of European security. So historically, the so-called Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, the SACUR, has been an American military officer. That's since the dawn of the alliance in 1949. Um, if an American president said, you know what, we think that the next sack year should be a European, it would really send shockwaves throughout Europe, the sort of strategic uh, corridors across Europe to say, hey, the Americans have said not only that the political head, the secretary general of NATO has to be a European, they want the lead military commander in Europe to be a European. And of course, there would be tremendous fighting between Poles and Brits and French to say, actually, it needs to be a Pole or a Brit or a Frenchman. Um, but those discussions need to happen. We have policymakers that are third and in some cases, fourth generations that have been socialized into a transatlantic relationship in which the United States does the bulk of the lifting and the Europeans smile and nod. And so anything that moves even gradually away from that 
is viewed as impolitic, like breaking wind in an elevator or something like that. And I think that, th so in a sense, you don't have to be Trumpy about it, but even the more wonky think tank type proposals for rebalancing these things are going to cause pearl clutching and gasping in European capitals, but that's international politics ain't beanbag. Justin Logan directs defense and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please. And thank you for listening.